This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, Preventing a Cyber Attack, Chefs Who Feed the Hungry, and The Dream of International Travel Once Again. But we begin with Taking Care of Business. The Ontario Chamber of Commerce was pushing hard for a vaccine passport system long before its implementation last week, stating that a proof of vaccination program would encourage more Ontarians to get vaccinated and allow businesses to remain open even as case counts rise. The OCC, by the way, is an independent, nonpartisan partner of Ontario business whose mission is to support economic growth in this province by defending business priorities at Queen's Park on behalf of its 60 thousand plus members. Rocco Rossi, President and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, is our guest now on the feed. Welcome to the show, Rocco. Always great to have you with us. A real pleasure, and thank you for shining a light on this incredibly important issue. So there was a quote on September 1st. Here it is. Provinces with a vaccine passport system in place will experience higher economic growth, greater consumer and business confidence, and reduced risk of further lockdowns. Do you still feel that way about vaccine certificates? 100%. This is not something anyone really wanted, but we absolutely need it. Um, because it is a key tool to reinstilling confidence to return to the economy, both for employees and um, for customers. And also what we've seen, we've, we've gotten benefits already because we've had a resuscitation of vaccinations and first doses. So each and every day, we're all getting safer because the numbers and rate of vaccination is increasing in Ontario. That's what they saw in Alberta and Saskatchewan and, and why they, after resisting for so long, have turned around and, and put that system in, in place to try to stop uh, the nightmare that's occurring there. So without getting too political, why do you think the Ontario government dragged its feet? Look, this is not an easy thing um, to do, uh, but when it became clear that businesses and organizations were going to put their own vaccination policies in place, then the government had to follow suit. We are required as employers to provide a safe work environment. And in the age of COVID, that means having a vaccine policy, and that quite frankly means having uh, proof of uh, vaccination or so-called vaccine passport. So it was implemented September 22nd. We're now almost a dozen days into it. How's it going in your view? Well, again, we're already reaping benefits from enhanced vaccination rates that were stopping, quite frankly, before. Two, yes, there are some very inconsiderate, very impolite people who've been taking this change out on young servers and making schemes and uh, making reservations they have no intentions of filling just to cause pain to businesses. Really, uh, really juvenile uh, activity and behavior. But by and large, incredible uh, uptick and appreciation to the point that I'm actually getting more calls from businesses 
that want to be added to the vaccine passport system than those who are having problems with it. Uh, because as you know, there are some categories that haven't been included, and quite frankly, they'd like to be included and have the government say that they're included as opposed to them doing it and being, you know, pointing themselves as, as uh, targets for some of these um, some of these uh, protesting anti-vaxxers. So I'm not sure that many of us realized that there was a, a, a system by which businesses would uh, be entered into the, the passport, the vaccination certificate uh, system itself. I didn't realize that there were some that had been perhaps excluded or not added to it. So how does all of that work? Well, again, it's... Um, it's most of the so-called non-essential businesses, but uh, it did not include, for instance, um, personal services. So barbers, uh, stylists, etc., have not been included. And I guess the thinking was, um, look, all of the employees and, uh, and the customers can be ma- masked, so it's a lower threshold of risk. None of these things neither vaccines nor the passport system nor masks, none of these things are 100% guarantee of safety, but all of them together are the tools that we have at our disposal to avoid the thing that 100% of businesses never want to see again, and that's another lockdown. So again, this is something, you know, it, it, it is inconvenient, it's not the... It's not something anyone would like to do if we had another choice, but we don't. It's a necessary thing, and it's important for people to be kind and considerate and patient to the businesses that are doing it. Just provide a safer environment for you and for their employees. You bring up a very good point. So business owners and employees, they now have the pressure of checking and confirming vaccine certificates. What are your thoughts about that? Well, the QR code, the automated thing can't come soon enough because that'll be a ton easier than the the paper receipts that we're dealing with. And as well, at the beginning of the election campaign, Prime Minister Trudeau promised a billion dollars to the provinces to help facilitate the rollout of proof of vaccination systems because they know after 18 months of Hammering business is the last thing people need are additional costs and complications. So we're encouraging the provincial government to take the feds up on the offer to get Ontario share and to make sure that's distributed to small, medium-sized businesses uh, so that they're not incurring additional, uh, additional costs. You know, last week when the uh, rollout began on the 22nd of September, it made headlines every day for a couple of days this past week. Not so much. I I wonder if people are becoming more accustomed to it. Why isn't it making headlines this week? Well, it's like all things. There's always a a learning curve and there are things that can be improved and are being, being improved. But each and every day for every one of those complaints we've had, you know, over 30, in some cases over 40,000 Ontarians rolling up their sleeves to get vaccinated because they want the reward that full vaccination brings, and that is bringing your life back to a sense of normalcy and helping to protect the community, to protect yourself, 
and to, to return the economy and life to normal. Where, Rocco, do you think vaccination certificates are most effective? Well, the, the single most important thing is that they've been an encouragement for significantly more uptake of vaccinations. And two, they are, and as the data will, uh, will show, we continue to, to, uh, to believe and hope, it will allow for increasing capacity. So not only are we protecting against the lockdown, but we're actually going to help to accelerate the recovery. So you already saw the government announce some additional capacity increases in, um, in sports and music venues. And we would hope that as the data shows that this is reducing the risk of spread, that restaurants on the inside uh, dining can move from 50% to 75 to 100% so that they get the full value of the recovery and start to you know, earn the money to, 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 to pay for the last 18 months of pain. You know, you mentioned sports venues, and we hearken back to September the 28th, Jays games, 30,000 fans in the stands. That must, have, that must have been very satisfying for you. You've been pushing for vaccine certificates for a long time. Again, it is a necessity. How do you provide the safest possible environment so people can open and keep open their doors in a time of a pandemic. And, and this is a, a key tool. So we're delighted and, again, salute the government um, for, for putting it in place, salute the businesses for embracing it in the way that they have, salute the vast majority of Ontarians who recognize that this is, this is something, this is a far lesser evil than lockdown, and so they... They want to participate. They're doing their part. They're being patient. Um, and to all of those uh, Ontarians who are, are now overcoming barriers and hesitancy and getting vaccinated, the key to all of this, stay positive, test negative, get vaccinated, and buy local each and every chance you've got. So this might be a kind of an ethical question. Uh, Children age 5 to 11 are on the verge of being given the green light to be vaccinated. Should they have to carry vaccine certificates? I, I would be happy to take the parents at their word on this. Again, it, 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 you know, uh, for, for children that young, suggesting that a five-year-old is going to carry around a, a passport or birth certificate along with... Um, along with the proof of vaccination, I think is, is just adding way too much complexity. At a certain, at a certain moment, we're going, to have to, um, we're going to have to use some of the, uh, the honor system. Um, that said, I'm encouraged, uh, I'm encouraged by the data that's showing uh, the potential for uh, vaccination for children. And each and every shot at every age is making each and every one of us that much safer. Rocco, when the Premier speaks about vaccine passports, vaccine certificates, he is always saying we'll have it until necessary, as long as it is necessary, and then no more. So he's made it very clear that he's not really 100% comfortable with it, but he obviously understands it is a necessity, but he certainly made it clear that he would pull the plug on them as soon as possible. What do you think about that? 
And, and we totally agree. We've always been proponents to have uh, proof of vaccination as long as we need it, but only as long as we need it. Because let's make things simple and, um, uh, and, and uh, you know, less complicated for, uh, for everyone. But as long as we need it, we need to have it in, in place. And, uh, and right now we need it and we've seen Again, we have object lessons in Saskatchewan and Alberta that this uh, pandemic is not over yet. And the thing I would remind people, because I often hear from, from, from people to say, well, look, Rocco, in Ontario, we have 14 million people. So if you have several hundred cases or even a few thousand cases, it's minuscule compared to the overall population. The problem is that the relevant denominator is not the population. The relevant denominator is the number of ICU beds that we have. It's the hospital capacity we have. It's the nurses and doctors to deal with it. And that number is far, far smaller than 14 million. And several hundred or a thousand um, gets to a level where, where we are abusing our healthcare system. We are putting lives at risk, and the very heroes that we spend so much time banging on pots and pans and saying how wonderful they are, the best way to thank a doctor, a nurse, a frontline healthcare worker is to get vaccinated, is to use the system, and is to support the public health measures so that we get to the other side of this. Rocco Rossi, champion of business, president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Thanks for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much for having me. And, and to everyone, let's be kind to one another and let's keep on working together. We will see the other side of this. Here, here. Thank you, Rocco. October marks the start of Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Tina Cortez with some key findings. How prepared are Canadian businesses in the event of a cyber attack? Well, let's find out with Alexander Rao from KPMG. Welcome to the feed, Alex. Thank you very much for having me. So what can you tell us about the findings in this survey? So we had some very interesting findings from a small medium business perspective where we saw uh, 94% of the respondents that they are monitoring the environment for potential cyber attacks. On the other hand, only 59% of the businesses surveyed said that they are somewhat confident that they can actually detect a cyber attack in their environment. So even though we have a, a large amount of organizations monitoring, there's less confidence that they actually will see if a cyber attack happens in the environment. So that also means that we have a lot of organizations that don't even know until the attack or the ransomware might be launched within the environment is actually happening. So even though there's monitoring going on, there's a lot of organizations that are not able to detect and are unprepared for a cybersecurity attack. What does a cyber attack look like? Cyber attacks come in many ways, shapes, or forms. Um, we, we all know about uh, phishing attacks when attackers are trying to lure employees or people into giving up their uh, passwords by sending fake emails from trusted people or trusted clients and uh, 
they pose as a website that looks legitimate and they get uh, they dupe someone into giving the password and with that password organization uh, the attacker can get access into the organization environment they could also dupe the um the, the victim into opening an, a malicious file and that would plant some malicious code in the environment that also allows for access of the attacker into the environment other ways for attackers to gain access into environment is through vulnerabilities in the environment, such as a firewall that is not patched regularly, or uh, a web application or an application that's being used, and if there's a vulnerability, an attacker can exploit that. So there's the phishing attack and there's the vulnerability exploitation that an attacker can gain access into the environment. Now, we know that many businesses were forced to pivot and move to digital platforms because of the pandemic. Is this the reason businesses are not prepared? It's a part of the reason, and that's, that's a great question. So businesses have undergone digital transformation prior to the pandemic. But throughout the last almost two years, the transformation of organizations to go more digital has rapidly expanded. And organizations are not only putting services online for their clients, they also had to put, allow, had to put and allow employees to work from home. So what that brings with it is an increased attack surface for attackers to exploit an organization with. When I was mentioning phishing emails earlier, suddenly when people and employees are working from home, processes and procedures that have worked in the, in the office environment where you quickly could walk across the hall and ask your colleague if an email was sent by them, that doesn't work when you're sitting at home hmm. and your colleague might be working from across the the province. So organizations need to adapt to these new changed work environments to allow for security, cybersecurity features and processes in place to prevent such cyber attacks on this increased cyber threat um, surface that organizations have. So as a consumer, is there anything that we can do to protect our personal information? Um, consumers are really urged to uh, stay on on top of their data and to understand where they have certain confidential data stored and to protect it properly. Like we all have heard, for example, to have strong passwords and so on and so forth when we're dealing with, with organizations where we store our banking information or other confidential data. Passwords alone are no longer enough to protect confidential data from from unauthorized access. Uh, we need to add additional elements, and consumers might have noticed that uh, financial institutions, for example, and even some government services have added what we call a so-called two-factor authentication mechanism when it comes to authenticating themselves to services that they're using online. So in addition to your password, you might get sent a text message, for example, to your phone or you might receive a phone call to verify that it's you who's gaining access or wanting access into that environment. So making sure that you have two-factor authentication to many of the services that you are using is really very important nowadays. And what that prevents, even if an attacker fishes your password, they wouldn't have access to that second factor, like your phone, your text message, and so on. And even though your password might be compromised, they might not get access into the environment. So adding a few layers will help. 
adding a few layers. This is really a key concept from a security perspective, what we call defense in depth, so adding several layers. And that's not only important for organizations having these separate layers, but also for individuals from a personal protection perspective. And what I also would like to highlight in addition to how we can protect ourselves, not only in our work lives, but also in our personal lives, is cybersecurity awareness training. If we can train our employees or, and also ourselves personally about the importance of cybersecurity when it comes to dealing with digital data, digital identities, and personal identifiable information, we really need to treat that information like we used to treat cash or other valuable assets that we were carrying and trying to protect from unwanted eyes or unwanted hands. Oh, that's such a great piece of advice, especially because, you know, the province is expected to roll out a digital ID program later this year. The QR code for our vaccine status is expected to be introduced later this month. Should we be concerned? Um, there's always a concern about these types of data when it's uh, being put uh, digitally online, right? But we, on the one hand, we have to, A, trust the individual organizations and the government that they're doing their due diligence when it comes to protecting our data. But again, I, I bring it back to ourselves that we have some owners as consumers to make sure that we protect the data as well. So. Um, from that, it will be on our phones, right? So we have to make sure that we have passwords, that we have certain uh, security measures on our phone, and the ability to, for example, when we lose it, we can wipe it, for example. So we want to make sure that certain security humor perspectives, so unauthorized people do not get access to it from the devices that we use, and also ensure and have the trust in the organizations that we're dealing with that they are protecting the data that they're holding for us. And Alex, just before we let you go, one last piece of advice for businesses. Businesses should really um, look at how they can protect themselves the best. And oftentimes we understand, and when we talk to our clients, businesses do best in what they're good, and that's usually their subject matter expertise, either manufacturer or retail, and if they sell well, they manufacture something very well. But cybersecurity is not their subject matter expertise. So my key piece of advice would be seek advice from the people who know what they're doing, from cybersecurity experts, bring them into your organization, help them develop a resilient cybersecurity program, offload some of the technical cybersecurity management to a third party that uh, can perform those services for a better return on investment for businesses rather than doing it yourself. And again, multi-factor authentication is also important for employees when they access company data and as well keep your software up to date with the latest patches. Lots of great advice there. Thank you, Alexander Rao from KPMG. We appreciate your expertise. You're welcome and thanks for having me. After the break, food lovers unite to fight hunger. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. 
According to the World Health Organization, there was a sharp rise in world hunger because of the pandemic, with more than 800 million people undernourished in 2020. In the United States, our neighbor to the south, more than 35 million people live in households that struggle with hunger. Shocking, disturbing, and downright sad. But rather than pay it lip service, let's do something about it. Seema Sangavi is leading the charge and in her own unique way. She is the founder of Cooks Who Feed, and she joins joins us now on the feed. Welcome, Seema, to the show. Good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. So Cooks Who Feed, what a great idea. Tell me where this came from in your life. So I've always been a foodie. Um, my whole, as far as I can remember, I think I learned to cook when I was about six years old. So always, it's always been an interest of mine and always been well aware that you know, there are so many people less fortunate and who don't get to experience food the way that I do. You know, it's not about, you know, creating these meals and sharing these meals with family. For, for many people, it's, you know, just meeting their basic needs and have, and have always wanted to do something about that. And when I learned how much food was, you know, going, being, you know, being wasted and end up in landfills, um, and that that food alone could feed so many people, I knew I had to do something about it. Tell me about Cooks Who Feed. What's the concept? How does it work? For sure. So the whole idea is to be a kitchen textile brand for the conscious foodie. So we started with our adult aprons, and for every apron sold, we provide 100 meals. And we do that through charity partners um, that we have that we've established. Um, so we have a charity partner in Canada, Second Harvest. We have one in the U.S. and one in Asia. And every time we sell an apron, a fixed amount of our proceeds go to our charity partners so we can provide those 100 meals. So the whole concept is every product has a give back model. That's, that's the whole idea around it. So like I said, we started with the adult aprons. We're introducing a line of child aprons in the next week or so. And we're also introducing a line of tea towels closer to the holidays. Mm. Really, it, it's really just about being that textile brand for, for the conscious foodies out there. So if I understand this correctly, the money that you make from selling the aprons and the other items that will soon be coming out, that goes to your different partners around the world. That's correct. And they all have something in common, and that is that they rescue uh, surplus food to provide meals. So I mean, you might be familiar with Second Harvest here in Canada. They get all their food, usually from like farmers and grocery stores. So all that food that you know maybe doesn't look nice enough, um, you know, to make it to the grocery store, they take that and provide meals to those in need. You have a slogan: one apron at a time. One apron at a time. Let's let's explore that a little bit more. There's a lot more to the making of these aprons than meets the eye. Yeah. So. When I look at kitchen textiles that are, you know, available in the market when I was, when I, before I started this company, I noticed that so many of these textiles are, you know, made in probably not the most ethical way and they use man-made materials, a lot of polyester, and I just wanted to have a different approach. I thought, you know, if we're going to have this give back model, we should also make sure of, you know, we're producing these products in the right way. So all of our aprons are handmade in India. Uh, we provide fair trade work to marginalized women. We currently employ about 60 women full-time. They hand-make all of our aprons. And for a special touch, every apron comes with a little hand tag that explains the impact, and the lady who made it signs the signs the hand tag. 
And we only use natural fabrics, organic fabrics, so nothing, nothing man-made. I'm really moved by the fact that you are employing uh, upwards of 60 women and you're doing it ethically. That is so important. How are you able to confirm and keep an eye on everything that's going on? And I believe it's in Delhi, India, if I'm not mistaken. It is. It is in Delhi. And I've been lucky enough to partner with an NGO in India to do this. And that's actually where the inspiration came from. I I was in India for a friend's wedding of all things and um, found out about this NGO and wanted to see what they were doing. And when I went there and I just saw these ladies working and, you know, so proud to have, for a lot of them, their first job, um, you know, being being able to feel independent. And I just really want to help out. And that that, you know, that moment always stuck out in my mind and it always stuck with me and I really wanted to work with these women and help more women have the same opportunity. And that's kind of how the idea of Cook Who Feed started. Let's explore these facts. 800 million people undernourished in 2020 during the pandemic. What does that mean? What does that mean to you? It tells me that it's everywhere, right? Like hunger is really everywhere. You, it, it doesn't matter whether you live in Canada or whether you live in India. It's, it really is everywhere. And you may not see it. It may not you know, be as apparent in some places, but it's definitely there. There's people everywhere struggling. And you think about our partners to the South, they're struggling with so many aspects of this pandemic, including hunger. 35 million people in households struggling with hunger. What does that mean to struggle with hunger? I can, I, I'm a mom of three kids, so for me, really, I, I look at it as not being able to provide my children with the nutrition that they need, right? And I think a lot of families struggle with that. You see that sometimes with kids and what they bring to school. There's a lot of kids who don't bring a full lunch to school, right? And to me, that's what it means. It means you're not being able to provide the basic nutrition for yourself and your family. It's interesting. So many of us take food for granted, and we certainly don't understand what food waste is. What was your first discovery when it came to the concept of food waste? Yeah, you know, for me, um, I would have to say up until a few years ago, I thought food waste was what you waste at home, that it really just came to that. But it is that, but it's so much more than that as well, right? There's so much food that doesn't even make it to the grocery store because it, you know, it's, it doesn't look right or maybe it's too close to an expiry date. or There's so many reasons why, but there's so much food that's wasted from the time it's grown to the time, you know, someone buys it and takes it home. And I think there's so many ways that we can tackle tackle this problem at each level um and it's it's really upsetting to think that we you know the amount of food that we throw out the un has stated the amount of food that we throw out could feed the entire world hungry four times over so when i when i hear that i think well this is a problem we can solve then because the solution already exists so one apron can provide 100 meals how does that work yeah so and for every apron that we sell, over 35% of our profits go to our charity partners, and that provides the 100 meals. It's actually 107 meals, but I thought that doesn't sound as, as nice. <laughs> so we just say one for 100. I think that's your marketing background. You, you've spent many years yeah. <laughs> in marketing, so, but you're a very realistic individual and a very caring one as well. You've reached out to celebrity chefs to join your team. Can you tell us who they are? For sure. So we've been lucky enough to work with a few Canadian chefs as well as an American chef and a chef based out of uh, Bangkok as well in Thailand. So the three Canadian partners that we have are Chef Christine Cushing, 
Chef Romain Avril and Chef Devin Rajkumar. Um, our chef in the U.S. is Chef Art Smith. I think a lot of people might know him from, um, he was Oprah Winfrey's personal chef for about 10 years, so I think he's got a little bit of a celebrity status to him. And then we also work with Chef Gavin Anand in Bangkok, who is a well-known Michelin star chef. And we're, and we're actually bringing on a new chef um, in, in closer to the holidays. We're going to be working with Vikram Vidge out in Vancouver. He's designing our tea towels for us. And so their, their involvement is the design of the aprons, but it's also their stamp of approval, which I think is probably very important. So at this point, how many meals have you provided through your apron sales? So we're just under 300,000 meals so far. And what's your next goal? I want to hit the 500,000 mark before the end of this year, but our goal is to get to at least a million meals per year. That is what I've always, you know, since we started this, what I wanted to achieve is to hit the 1 million meals per year. So if there are more than 800 million people dealing with hunger issues around the world, they're undernourished, do you feel that you're making a difference? Yeah, I I definitely think so. Um, I mean, it's that's what keeps me going. <laughs> so I think any meal provides a difference right, in someone's life. And I think that in addition to the meals, also providing a difference to the ladies who make our who make our, our textiles. I mean, I haven't been able to travel and see them in, in the last couple of years now, but definitely, you know, knowing that we've We've grown the team and obviously providing them with, you know, their fair trade income. They're able to also lift their families out of poverty. It's, you know, it's definitely impacting their lives as well. And the goal for us is to, as we grow, you know, hire a lot more women and also work with charities in different parts of the world so we can have impact in different countries. This is a multi-pronged initiative, that is for sure. So on a personal note, Seema, do you look at food differently now? You know, I... My parents are both um, immigrants, and I was very much raised that you never waste food, that you always finish what your plate and don't take too much. So I've always had that lens, and I think I've always carried that with me, and I see that I'm I'm also like that with my own children, don't want them to take more than they can actually eat and want them to finish every last thing. Um, But I think I've been more aware, for sure, on the amount of food that is thrown out overall. Like, I've never... Just to understand that, you know, like I said, it could feed the entire world's hungry four times over. That, to me, um, is mind-boggling. And I think a lot of people, they don't look at it that way or they don't know that, you know. And I think when you look at it that way, you realize, okay, this is really something that's really sad and we have to change. How can we get involved? Where do we go? What can we do, Seema? Um, well, you can definitely, you know, I think anything from supporting your local food banks is, is, is you know, is amazing. Um, Second Harvest, like I said, is our charity partner in Canada. Um, of course, if you are looking for, a, you know, a great gift for the foodie in your life or for yourself, go to cooksoufeed.com. Uh, our aprons are beautifully made. Like I said, we're going to be launching our kids line very soon and a line of tea towels as well. Hmm. Seema Sangavi, the founder of Cooks Who Feed, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. When we come back, looking forward to international travel once again. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. So the pandemic put a pause on travel, but a new survey suggests Canadians are starting to plan their dream vacations. Tina with the details. 
Shannon Racer, customer advocate from Wise Global Technology Company, joins us next. Shannon, what did your survey uncover about the hopes and dreams of Canadian travelers? So our survey findings uncovered some really interesting insights about how Canadians are feeling about international travel. Um, The survey found that international travelers are very eager to get back abroad, however, hesitant to do so with the Delta variant and, of course, ongoing health concerns and also traveling concerns. But new cultural experiences and a break from from work or kind of just day-to-day life and, of course, sightseeing are one of the most common themes that are fueling those interests to really get back out there, travel, and get abroad. And so can you break down some of the key findings for us? Absolutely. So at Live, we're committed to building the, the best, cheapest, and most transparent way to move money around the world. And we know that our customers depend on our solution when traveling internationally. So with so many travel obstacles that are to contend with, just in general, but also, you know, living in in the pandemic, um, and lots of international travel on hold, we really just wanted to understand how Canadians were feeling. So, and that was the goal of, of, of our survey. So we did find that more than half of Canadians, so it was 55%, they said that they have more of a desire to travel internationally than ever before. And I think a lot of us can relate to that too because we're feeling very stuck um, either in in our homes or wherever we landed. Um, And so they want to travel now even more because of that feeling of being stuck. Um, We also found that less than a quarter of Canadians said that they're currently planning an international trip within the next six months. Um, and of people planning to travel within this, this time frame, um, men and younger Canadians, 18 to 34, were more likely to be planning international getaways um, at 28% and 32% respectively. So um, another question we asked was, was what Canadians are missing most about international travel. And like I said, they want to see new sites, experience new environments, disconnect, relax. Some said they wanted to see family, but also learning about different cultures. So I think everyone's ready to leave their living rooms. (laughs) Ain't that the truth. Now, in terms of your survey, how did Canadians and Americans compare in terms of their responses? Sure. So so like I said before, um, you know, our survey did show that um, Canadians were eager to get back out, but also reluctant because of of the, uh, the pandemic, the Delta variant, and those kind of things. Um, but it did show that Americans are a bit more likely to want to be out and about and travel internationally. Um, but they've, the pandemic really disrupted life as we all know it. I think as a global collective, we can all say that it has caused a huge disruption. Um, and that, that was really paralleled across both of those demographics. Um, but America does really feel like they want that it's safer to travel. Um, So nearly four in five Americans, um, as opposed to three in four Canadians, reported that international travel is one of the things they're looking forward to most. Um, But Americans are, like I said, planning trips abroad much sooner. So 72% in the U.S. versus 42% in Canada. Did the respondents share perhaps you know, what some of the challenges might be or that they would be expecting if they start to travel again? 
Sure. So you will find some challenges. I mean, for example, flight delays or even flight cancellations are very common, whether flying domestically or internationally. So being able to be a little flexible with your time frames and maybe plan a little bit of extra time in your travel to accommodate those, those delays um, is definitely something that any traveler should anticipate. So those are our challenges. And then, of course, we have um, we also have other things, for example, needing to show a vaccine passport. There are some, some countries that are closed, their borders are closed, so making sure that you're not traveling to one of those destinations is very important before you book that flight. Um, and then also certain airlines have different requirements depending on who you're flying with. So that's another challenge is just being able to know um, that you're up to speed and prepared for anything that might come your way during your trip. And what about in terms of hotel prices and exchange rates? So, so when you're booking a hotel, um, you typically are going to book in your currency. We call that, the, uh, we, we basically, it's your home currency, right? Um, but oftentimes, if you're going somewhere, if you're traveling somewhere that's international, they, have, they use a different currency. So it's actually better for you to be able to pay in the local currency of where you're staying. So that way you get the best rate. Um, so when booking the hotel, make sure that you, when you get there, you let them know that you do want to, when you check out, pay in that local currency. So that way you're not paying inflated exchange rates and you're not at the mercy of banks who can charge you a markup fee of whatever they choose. Oh, some good tips there for sure. How does WISE technology help travelers get the most out of their trips? So at WISE, we, um, our, our number one mission is to provide the fastest uh, and, and least expensive um, currency exchange in the world. Um, we offer that to not only travelers, um, but also we offer that for those who are uh, business people as well. You know, we talk a lot about how we're itching to travel just for fun, um, but we also are trying to travel for, we also might have to travel for business reasons. So in that regard, uh, we want to make sure that we're saving everyone as much as we can. Um, and we're committed to help not only with exchange rates, but also just to help with different financial pain points that are associated with travel. Um, with with international travel um, being so difficult because of pandemic-related reasons, any way that we can ease the burden is something that we 100% want to do. And Shannon, if our listeners want more information about WISE technology, where can they go? They can go to our website. It's WISE.com. They can go to any of our social media sites. We're across Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, we also are on LinkedIn and YouTube. We have some great content on YouTube if you want to watch some videos with tips and ideas. Um, check us out. That's terrific. Thanks for joining us on the feed. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. Big dreams can come true with a big lottery win. Jim Lang is next with new single sport betting. Well, the one thing I do love about fall is I'm a big football fan and sports fan. And OLG, very, very excited now that it's legal, the legal option to bet online in single events, sporting events. With ProLine from OLG, to talk more about it, thrilled to be speaking with their director of digital sports marketing and operations, Rhea Jankowski. Rhea, how are you? 
Hi, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. I'm great. How are you? Oh, I'm excellent. I'm excited. This is a, a new chapter in the life of OLG and ProLine and sports fans like myself who like to bet on a game here and there. This is very exciting and a real, a real step up to the new generation, next generation of being a sports fan. Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm so excited that we launched our new platform a couple of weeks ago when single event wagering became legal in Canada. And uh, we've got a great offering for Ontario sports bettors with a ton of new sports, uh, new markets, and uh, new ways to bet, including, of course, single events. Now, I've, I've always been a big fan of the ProLine app. I'm a little biased because I like my sports, but it's just, it's just almost better and bigger than ever. Let the listeners know more about how the app and ProLine and single game sports betting are all kind of coming together to make it easier for you to bet on a game you want to bet on. Yeah, well, uh, ProLine Plus is our new website. Um, it works on whichever device you prefer, desktop, uh, mobile, or tablet. And on our site, we've got uh, a ton of options for you to bet on sports. Um, we've got a ton of new sports available, like tennis we have with the U.S. Open. We've got dynamic competitive odds um, and lots of new ways to bet, like single event, as I mentioned. And we also have live betting, so you can bet on games as they're being played. Now, you induct, sort of conducted a really interesting survey, Rhea, and I thought it was maybe just me, but I was actually quite interested to find out that more than half of the people who live in Ontario like to bet on sports say that betting is a great source of entertainment and makes watching the games fun, which to me is not a surprise, but I did think that was a pretty big number, Rhea. Oh, yeah, uh, definitely when it comes to, uh, when it comes to sports betting, it, it really elevates the game-watching experience, so uh, it just adds a little something to, you know, maybe your Sunday night as you're watching the football game. And 45% of respondents say that betting on sports gives them something to talk about with their friends, which, which whether, whether, whether it was social media or in person or texting, is very true. Oh, yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a great, uh, a great social bonding, especially we know our players love to talk to their friends when, uh, when they've got a big win, too. <laughs> Was there other things from the survey that jumped out at you that even with, in, in your position and what you do, Rhea, that kind of surprised you? Like, oh, that's really cool. I didn't know that. I didn't expect that. Well, I think for me, the, the two things I really took away was um, that with single event wagering becoming legal, um, about two-thirds of people were more likely to place a single wager, um, especially with ProLine Plus coming out. You know, this is definitely a very trustworthy site uh, for Ontarians to bet on. Um, OLG's been in the sports betting business with ProLine for almost 30 years now, and we're, we're really now with ProLine Plus. We've got a great, safe, legal, and trustworthy site. Uh, for players to place their bets when it comes to sports betting. Um, and, you know, the, the other stat from the survey was that uh, the majority of bettors felt good about ProLine Plus giving the profits back for uh, back to the province of Ontario and doing good here locally. Speaking with Rhea Jankowski, the Director of Digital Sports Marketing and Operations at OLG, talking about ProLine Plus and single-game sports betting. And, and that's, that's something sometimes we forget as sports fans or people maybe betting on a hockey game or football game about these proceeds going back to things like healthcare, especially with PSWs and nurses and the pandemic. I mean, that is important for all of us to understand. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're, we're really happy to be giving players a product they want, but also super happy to be uh, giving back to the province of Ontario for all of these great causes. Now, are you finding, I'm curious about this, that I'm finding with a lot of friends that maybe wouldn't have watched a sporting event or wouldn't have bet on a sporting event before because of COVID, it's almost like, hey, I want to watch a game I didn't watch because I took it for granted or bet on a game. Are we getting more engagement with people who want to go to games, want to be part of games, maybe want to bet on games now in the future? 
Uh, we're definitely seeing from, you know, the survey you mentioned that uh, about a quarter of people that we surveyed said that they're, they plan to attend more sports games in the next 12 months. So I think people are really excited to, to get back into it, you know, whether it's the Jays who are making a great bid um, for the playoffs or, uh, or the hockey or basketball seasons coming back. So I, I think it'll be interesting to see how, um, how attendance changes in the next couple months. Now, I know recently you had some odds about Ted Lasso and the Emmys and stuff like that. Is that something we will see in the future, that ProLine Plus and, and, and betting like that goes beyond sports and maybe to pop culture as well? Yep. So uh, in addition to our new sports, we can offer novelty betting on pop culture events. So we're constantly evaluating opportunities to see, you know, what makes sense for us to offer to our players. Uh, we did have betting on the... Emmys, uh, which wrapped up on Sunday, and uh, definitely Ted Lasso was a favorite in the odds, and and in terms of where we saw our, our betters putting their money uh, for best comedy series. Oh, I have to tell you, my wife and daughters will be thrilled because anytime there's like a big Oscars event or something, they'll be betting on like what dress, what star will be wearing. Yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a ton of different markets that you can bet on, whether it's with sports or with novelty, and we're so excited to to offer a, a breadth of choice for our consumers with Line Plus. OLG.ca is the website. Their uh, Twitter feed is at PlaySmartOLG. They have their fantastic app, ProLine Plus. Rhea Jankowski, thank you so much for doing this. As a sports fan, I'm thrilled to see that single-game sports betting is legal in this country and that ProLine is always at the forefront of uh, legal, safe sports betting and giving back to the community as always. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Thank you. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.